Our passage this morning comes from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18, uh, verses 31 through 34. Before I read the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come again before you this morning to sit at the feet of the evangelist Luke, to hear these words that you infallibly inspired him with by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give us the same spirit this morning, that he might dwell within our hearts, and that he might take this word and plant it there, that he might re- prepare our hearts to receive it unto fruitfulness, that your word would bear fruit in our lives of repentance from sin, of faith and devotion to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and obedience to his will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now the reading of God's holy word from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. Then he took unto him the twelve, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated and spat on, and they shall scourge him and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, neither knew they the things which were spoken. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever, and his people said, Amen. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem in the climax of of the gospel narratives. All the gospel narratives focus and go around the events of the last week of Jesus Christ, culminating in his crucifixion and then his resurrection. Uh, the, The gospel narratives are not histories as we understand them, nor biographies as we understand them. That's not to say that they're not true and convey accurate information. That is entirely the truth. Uh, But normally when we uh, go for a biography, we want to go from uh, youth and the influences of youth into their early adulthood, into the prime of their life and how it ends up. This is not what we get in the Gospels. It would be impossible to do because the life of Jesus Christ is still with us. Uh, when we say, and we have recently uh, enjoined the, uh, the year of our Lord, 2024, uh, we would be talking about a book that would be a biography that would have to include all of that into eternity. Uh, because Jesus is alive. But the climax and the focus is nevertheless those two events. They belong together Jesus always keeps them together. The apostles keep them together, even though sometimes we tend to push them apart in our uh, praises and that sort of thing, of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are heading towards Jerusalem now. They have left Galilee. They've gone to, through Samaria and Perea. They are coming up, as we shall see, Lord willing, next week upon Jericho. And that's not that far from Jerusalem. Uh, They are heading there not to uh, uh, great anticipation of welcome. I mean, they will be welcomed. We know that from Palm Sunday. But uh, what we don't often remember is that the crowds that are bringing Jesus into Jerusalem and, and calling Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, are people that are on pilgrimage out of Galilee. 
But as he comes through the gates, he meets the opposition of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, the leaders of God's people at that time. And this is not unknown to his disciples. This is not unknown to many that are traveling with him. And it is good and wise that Jesus Christ himself prepares them by telling them what is going to happen. This is not the first time that he has done so. If you look in chapter 9, he does that there. uh, When Jesus queries his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the son of God, the Christ. Uh, And he then goes and tells them what is so contrary to the understanding of the Christ at that time. They were expecting a Jewish Caesar to put the Roman Caesar in his place. And what Jesus tells his disciples is that you're getting a suffering servant, a lamb that is to be sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. And we know in that occasion, Peter is outraged and says, Lord, never, don't let it be. And Jesus, who had just told him, upon this faith, I will build my church, tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you do not savor the things of God. So this is one of those lessons that's at the heart of what Jesus is about. And what makes it hard is that it includes suffering. That Jesus himself must suffer. This is what we get in 31, 32, and 33. We get the descriptions, particularly the first part of 33. Uh, Scourged and put to death. Not pleasant. Uh, In other times, he's told them before that he would be crucified, a very shameful form of death. We see in verse 32 that he is to be mocked and sped upon and insulted. But we also see that these things are, are his work. This is the work that was foreordained for him to do. Uh, he is not without a purpose that Jesus begins his saying. He says, Behold, we go to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. That they have foretold this. And there's many places in the Old Testament we can go to, to see that. Uh, if you turn to Psalm 22, a Psalm of David, but... This is one that uh, David is speaking because he has foreseen or is in the spirit uh, understanding his own sufferings in the same sort of sense that Christ would suffer. This is why Christ takes this psalm upon his lips when he's crucified. Uh, But he's not just quoting scripture. This is his words. And look at me. This is the first 21 verses. It's not short, but let's go with it. He says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cried in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. Thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didn't deliver them. They cried unto thee and, that, and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised of the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head, saying he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. 
But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was in my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb, and thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have come past me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaved to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorn or uh, from the altar as well. And you could go to Psalm 69 and read that psalm and see other things that show directly unto the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, his betrayal by his friends. And we think Judas, but we should also not just think Judas, but Peter too. And in all of them, at one point or another, fled from him and abandoned him. We see in Isaiah 53, the first part of which we read, but the whole chapter, and and in fact, it actually backs up to the previous chapter uh, from verse 13 on, speaks of the, uh, the stripes that are laid upon the suffering servant so that God's people might be healed. And it's not just to suffer, to suffer in the body that becomes uh, the, the main point in all of these things, but also to suffer uh, insult and shame. Also given by the prophets, we see a little bit of that in the Psalms of David. Uh, we see it also in Isaiah chapter 50, verses 5 and 6. Uh, the Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I did hid not my face from shame and from spitting. And, and, and Jesus tells us, and Luke records for us, that he would even be spat upon for these things. So this was work foreordained for him to do. But it was foreordained for him to do. Jesus, because it was necessary for him to do. Jesus doesn't go around fulfilling the prophecies because they were prophesied. Uh, We ought not to think that Jesus had to do this and this and this and this and this because this and that prophet said that this and this would happen. That's not why Jesus does any of that. The prophets saw and made their prophecies on the basis of what they understood Jesus must endure. That the focal point, the beginning, even though it's not the beginning in time, but it is the beginning in the plans of God and the decrees of God, was the suffering of Christ. This is why... In the book of Revelation that we have Christ, the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Not that he was already crucified before the world came into being, but because that was the plan from the moment the world came into being. That this was a work that he had to do. 
as, as we read in uh, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why did he do it? Why did he lay on him the iniquity of us all? Because we could not bear it. And if he was to redeem a people, now his justice did not require that any sinner be saved. The justice of, the God, of God, the glory of God's justice, and therefore goodness is perfectly fulfilled if every sinner goes to hell. But God was also going to be merciful. And he was going to, re- to recover sinners. He doesn't recover the sinful angels, but he was decided to cover sinful men. But to do so, he could not do it at the expense of his justice. Psalm 85.10, in him justice and mercy kiss. That Jesus Christ upon the cross is bringing justice to bear for the sake of mercy. Our sin is going to be and has been punished on Christ Jesus. It is his sin that causes us, uh, causes him, uh, our sin that causes him to be cut off. In Daniel chapter uh, 9, verse 24, uh, the 70 weeks. And this is one reason why the people were all in agitation about the Messiah. The time had come for the Messiah. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall and even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince shall come, that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood and Unto the end, the war of desolations are determined. So we see that the Messiah is to be cut off, but not for himself, but for the sake of his people. And this is what is prophesied. And the shame, therefore, heaped upon him. The death, the wages of sin is death, and so the death that he bears is part of what we deserved. But also the shame. That Christ, as not the Son of God, but as the representative of the people, as the Son of Man, had to be spitefully used, insulted, spat upon, demeaned, and he was. And many of the, the things that, that are used to degrade Jesus Christ, we have a hard time seeing as, de- as degradation. Because Christ is risen from the dead and conquers. And he has taken the, uh, the, the vileness of the world set against sin and turned them to badges of conquest. So the cross right here. In the ancient world, one of the most clear symbols of shame. The Romans reserved crucifixion for those that were the dirt and not worthy of a proper execution. That they might suffer and be miserable and, and be exposed to ridicule 
That was the purpose of the cross. But after Christ, valiant, strong men of, say, the Middle Ages would, would take that same, very same symbol as a symbol of conquest and glory. And we do too. We have a hard time. We see the crown of thorns and we forget that it is a, an object of torture. It was put upon Jesus' head to, to cause him pain, to mock his pretensions to be the king of Israel. Because Christ has transformed that object of shame into an object of glory. But we have to remember that he nevertheless went through the shame. When John the Baptist points out Christ in John 1.29 and says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What he's telling them there is what Jesus is telling his disciples here. That what Jesus goes to do is vicarious. It's on behalf of sinners. That's what, that's what the Lamb was. Uh, the Lamb in the Old Testament, the priest laid his hands upon him and put the sins of Israel there and sent him out. And Christ was to be that magnet of sin, if you were. Or rather, as, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he was made to, to be sin who knew no sin. That we, who know no righteousness, might be, be made righteous in him. Is this that it's not, we switch places, if it were. He bears our iniquity that we might bear his victory. But that was hard to hear. Because that is as far as the disciples went. They didn't give ear to the fullness of what Jesus was saying. Uh, they, they didn't recognize the victory that is there in the resurrection of the dead. That Christ is not just conquering death, but he conquers the source of death, which is sin. The third day, he shall rise again from the dead. So Jesus must suffer. But Jesus' sufferings make way for greater glory. This, by the way, is the context of what Jesus is teaching him. If you look, and not all of you were here in the last couple of weeks, but if you look at what happens in the previous passages... In, in verses 18, the rich young ruler comes to him and he thinks he's righteous and, and is, is looking for that extra stuff to do. And Jesus just brings him back to the will of God constantly. But his call to obedience is in the same way that he does in chapter 9, 23, when he says, he who would follow me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And he says to that rich young ruler, sell what you have, give to the poor, have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Uh, the disciples are thinking, you know, we've left everything, what will we get? In verse 29 and 30, he says, No man who has left family and wives and wealth for my sake won't receive manyfold in this present life and in the life to come, life, uh, the world to come, life everlasting. Jesus is telling them that, that they don't lose their life by losing it. As he says in the other passage, he who would lose his, save his life shall lose it, and he who will lose his life for my sake shall save it. 
Jesus is saying that the glory comes through self-denial. Jesus is preparing them for the glory. Jesus goes the same way he calls us. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up the cross and follow him. What did Jesus do? He denied himself. We're told in Philippians chapter 2, if you look, 5 through 11, or 7 through 11, they didn't consider it to be robbery, to be considered equal with God. In other words, uh, he didn't have to strive for equality with God. He was equal with God. He is God of God. He is like the Father in all things. He is divine and holy, perfectly happy. He didn't have to suffer. But somebody did for sin. And so he made himself with no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a man, the form of a servant, so that he might die, so that he might suffer. But that wasn't a way of destruction. It is, as Paul reminds us, going through the rest of that passage, so that the Lord raised him up and gave him a name greater than every name, so that every name in heaven, in earth, and under the earth would bow their knee to him and give him praise and glory. And as I said, he turns those symbols of shame into badges of conquest. And by delivering him to judgment, his enemies were judged. Some of those were judged and humbled and came to repentance. We're told in Acts 6, after the deacons are established to take care of the poor, and that may be significant, that immediately after that, many of the scribes and the priests come and repent and join the church. Most famously, Paul, an enemy of the gospel, joins the church. But we also have many that, that don't. And we know that the crowning event that confirms the truth of the New Testament, that which was the seal of the prophecies of the New Testament, was the destruction, the foretold destruction of Jerusalem itself because of their uh, rejection of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that's put before them. And the twelve, they were being prepared for glory, but as we see, they needed to be prepared. Because they didn't understand. And it, we, we read it was hid from them. And it was almost, but not quite, as if it were lost upon them. We know that they could not hear because they would not hear. As I mentioned before, this is a reoccurring thing. The disciples, like all of us at one point or another, really want God upon our terms and not upon his terms. And when Jesus had foretold his death and resurrection in Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, Peter was affronted. And Jesus is not kind to him here. Well, he's kind in the broad sense in which he is nipping that problem in the bud. He says, get behind me, Satan. You do not savor the things of God. It is when we are seeking our own way that our prejudice blinds us to the obvious truth. Jesus isn't preaching a parable here. There's nothing completely, especially as we know how it's fulfilled, there's nothing here that is obscure and not plain. 
And this is not just Luke making Jesus' words plainer. We have the same basic words in Matthew and Mark in the same passage. Matthew and Mark also talk about how even hearing that, they start arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But yet we need to recognize that the words of Jesus Christ were not lost upon them. The word never returns unto God void. Judas, certainly, as in part of, of the betrayer of Jesus Christ, was bringing upon himself the judgment that was due him. But these words robbed him of excuse. And the gospel is fulfilled even in him. But the other disciples, these are words that comforted them. And we shall see also at the end of Luke's gospel that he is quite clear that it is talking with the disciples that it was the fact that these things that Jesus told them in past that they started to come to understand that gave them the greatest comfort. Sometimes you leave this church and as soon as the sunshine hits you, you forget everything that was said here. That doesn't mean that, that what is preached is vain. God in his mercy sometimes brings the word to bear upon us at a later time. Sometimes the, the lessons that our parents or school, Sunday school teachers or school teachers uh, sought to inculcate upon us are only lightly heard by immature minds. And it's only as we experience things that we realize the mercy that God has, has prepared for us. And so this too was not given to discourage the disciples, but to prepare them and build them up. What we learn from here is that we can bear the cross because Jesus is preparing them to bear the cross, but he's preparing them to bear the cross by telling them that he goes before them and doing even that, that he bore the cross. And when we consider Jesus' work, that he has suffered, that he was insulted, sped upon, that he was scourged, that he was brought into misery and pain, that he was uh, made a mocking, and that he died an ignominious death. But worst of all, that God himself, the Father, forsook him, because that is the work that he took upon himself to do. It should drive you and I to repentance and faith. Because we need to remember that every one of those things that he suffered, the vileness that was put upon him was the vileness that you and I deserve for insulting the holiness of the God who created us and sustains us. So we ought to humble ourselves when we see the suffering of Christ as our own as our own sufferings. And we ought then, therefore, to cling to that love that led him to suffer so that we wouldn't have to. And then Jesus' work upon the cross gives substance to your own. Uh, Paul says at the end of, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, considering the, the death being swallowed up in victory, that corruption has to put on incorruption, mortal must to put on immortality. He points to Jesus Christ. He says, therefore, we know that even in this present vain world, our work is not in vain in Jesus Christ. 
But he brings substance to our sufferings. If he calls you to a cross, it's because he's causing you to rise above it. If he calls you to bear suffering, it's because he has a far greater weight of glory in store for you. There is nothing that you deny yourself. As Jesus tells his disciples in our passage just a couple of verses before, that God won't restore manyfold in this present life and in the world to come eternal life. And if he paid to give such a life to you, then we can deny destructive vanities to receive it. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. And we ask that we would never shrink back from contemplating that great work of our Savior. We know, dear Lord, that uh, he reigns in heaven above at your right hand. That he is coming again in glory to receive us unto himself. We know that his glory, even in heaven, is the fact that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, what love. We ask, Father, that you would give us the grace to love in return. To love you with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind and to love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.